keeping up with smartphone apps and social media is a young person's game. And if you're not up to speed, then you won't understand the latest app that has long since made the significance of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram disappear. If you're not using Snapchat, then the bottom line is you're old. I don't use Snapchat, so I'm admitting that I'm old and slowly becoming obsolete. And if you're not using Snapchat, then you probably have no idea how it works, so let me explain the basics to you. Like all technology, there are risks and ways that the sinfulness of man can destroy something good, something useful, and that happens with Snapchat. But what's interesting about Snapchat is how it has challenged the previous status quo of social media. Whereas Facebook and Twitter and Instagram have created a place where you can keep your photos and your videos and your information and your memories and you can return to them to observe them time and time again, Snapchat does quite the opposite. For instance, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, people love to take pictures of their food and they usually spend five minutes getting the scene just perfect Admit that you do this so that your food's actually cold by the time you get to it, just so you can make your food look perfect so you can post it on social media. But Snapchat users could care less about that. They don't care how professional a picture or video looks. They have no desire to return to a picture or the memory that was captured in the picture. The point of Snapchat is to capture something in the moment, enjoy it briefly, and then move on. There's no desire to make a picture perfect or stage a food picture. You just capture the moment and you move on. And the pics and the videos that you make move on too. They disappear. Pictures on Snapchat are called snaps, and the picture or the videos that you post, the snaps that you share with your friends, disappear 10 seconds after they see it. So unless they grab a screenshot of it, it's gone. Once you view a snap, it evaporates. But Snapchat also allows you to leave one of your snaps up for 24 hours, what they call a story, so that your friends can see them. But after 24 hours those stories disappear. So after a story is on Snapchat for 24 hours, it's gone. And according to Snapchat, images are deleted and disappear from their servers too, supposedly. The point of Snapchat is that things disappear. Sometimes Christians treat God's word like Snapchat. Sometimes Christians let the context of a passage disappear when they are reading the Bible. Sometimes disciples read a verse and they delete the entire context and thus they misunderstand what God is saying to his people in his word. 
God doesn't leave the context of a passage up in the Bible for 24 hours and then it gets deleted so that you and I can just make it say what we want it to say. The context of any passage in the Bible never disappears. And if we really want to understand what is happening in Hebrews 6, one of the most misunderstood chapters in the Bible, we have to remember the context. We cannot let the context disappear as we discuss Hebrews chapter 6. We have to remember what the preacher has been saying all along and who he has been saying it to. The danger comes when we let the context disappear and we lift a verse out of its context and we make it say what we want it to say. Now remember the context The preacher, the pastor who's writing this sermon, this letter to the Hebrews has been telling the Hebrews who are a a group of, they're predominantly a Jewish group of believers. He has been telling them that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior to the old covenant. He's been telling them that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's been telling them that Calvary is greater than Sinai. He's been telling them that it is finished is greater than do this and live. He's been telling them that they can't return to the Mosaic law for justification. They can't return to the Mosaic law for righteousness. He's been telling them that they can't return to the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. And the preacher has repeatedly warned the Hebrews to not turn away from Jesus in unbelief like the first generation of Israelites did that came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. But, He has also repeatedly encouraged them to press on and to endure and to hold fast to their confession of faith. And so that's the context we must keep in mind as we look at this controversial section in Hebrews. And so our big idea today is simply this. Never let the gospel disappear. You and I need the gospel every single day. It should never disappear from our thoughts. It should never disappear from our our lives. It should never disappear from our conversations. The gospel is not a picture. It's not a, a snap that we take with Snapchat and then it just disappears and we move on from it. We never move beyond the gospel. We only move further and deeper into its truths. And the Hebrews needed a gospel refresher because as we saw last week, they were in danger of gospel fatigue. They'd become grown tired of hearing about the gospel. They'd become sluggish in the things of the gospel. They were suffering from gospel amnesia. And they needed to be reminded that as disciples, we should never ever be content with our grasp of the gospel. As disciples, we never graduate from the gospel We actually just go further and deeper into it. And so the gospel should never disappear from a church family. It should never disappear from our songs, from our prayers, from our sermons, from our classes, from our ministries. And we should never let the context 
of a passage disappear as we read it. So remember the context of Hebrews. As we saw last week, the preacher of Hebrews has been rehearsing the gospel for five chapters now, but he wants to move on and talk about how Jesus, the eternal son of God, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But he can't do that just yet, just yet because the Hebrews have become dull of hearing. They've become sluggish. So he has had to go over gospel milk again for five chapters so that they will be able to take in the solid food that he wants to share with them. And the solid food, as we will see in chapter 7, the solid food is the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. And so that's the context that we must keep before our eyes as we approach Hebrews 6. So let's approach it now. Look again, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, the preacher calls the Hebrews here to leave behind elementary truths that they heard at the beginning of their salvation, and he calls them to grow unto maturity. And without keeping the context in mind, it sounds like he's saying that they should, in fact, leave behind the doctrine of Christ. Now, that sounds strange, right? Leave behind the doctrine of Christ? Leave behind truth about Jesus? Doesn't that sound strange? Yes, I hope you say yes. It does sound strange. Why would any Christian ever want to leave behind the truth about Jesus? So the preacher is not saying that the Hebrews should leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ. He's not saying that the elementary truths that we learned about Jesus should disappear and we should move on, even though it looks like that's what he's saying. He can't be saying that we should leave the doctrine of Christ behind because he already told us in chapter 2 that we should be more intentional about keeping our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 2.1, he said, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. So we can't be saying that we should leave the truths that we have learned about Jesus behind But that's what it seems like he's saying with most English translations. And that's why some people think that that is exactly what he's saying. But he's not. The Greek language can be very helpful here. The Greek word that typically gets translated as let us leave. It actually means let us progress. The Net Bible, the New English translation, captures this idea when it translates it this way. Therefore, we must progress beyond We're called to progress beyond basic truth, but not leave it behind. We must progress and build on the basics of the gospel, but we're never to leave them behind as if we don't need these truths. We're called to grow spiritually and mature in the faith, but we never leave the basics of the gospel behind. And contextually, When the preacher says, let us leave, and this is very important. When the preacher says, let us leave, he's talking about leaving in this letter. 
Let us leave these things behind in this letter. Let us progress in the letter that I'm writing to you. Let me move on and talk about other things. Let's leave this stuff behind for a moment. Let's not talk about it for a moment so that we can get to talking about Jesus and Melchizedek in chapter 7. In other words, the preacher is saying this. I want to talk to you about Jesus and Melchizedek. I have so much to share with you. That's the maturity that I want to talk to you about, the solid food that I want to share with you. So let's not go over these basics anymore. Let's leave them behind. The basics of this letter that I've been going over and over for five chapters, let's leave them behind just for a moment, although they are very important, and let's progress on to discussing Jesus and Melchizedek in chapter 7. That's what he's talking about when he says, let us leave these behind. For a moment, let's not talk about these things. Not, let's leave these things behind. And please don't read the word elementary and think that he's talking about childish truths here. The Greek word for elementary here means basic or beginning or foundation or something at the first. So please don't read elementary as a bad thing, like it's some childish truth that we grow up and, and leave behind. We, you know, we, don't, we don't do that anymore. That's not what he's saying. It means the beginning. It means the foundation of something, not something that's childish. And so the preacher calls the Hebrews to progress in this letter that he's writing to them, to progress from the elementary truths that they heard at the very beginning of their salvation, that they've heard about for five chapters in this letter, and to grow to maturity, namely, being able to process how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You have to keep the context in mind. He's been rehearsing the basics for five chapters now, and now he's ready to move on. So what are these elementary, basic gospel truths that the preacher has been rehearsing for five chapters? He tells us in verses 1 through 3. And he groups this elementary teaching into three groups of two. The milk that they need to progress beyond in this letter, in this moment, are grouped in three pairs. Number one, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Number two, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. And number three, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You could word it this way. He's talking about repentance and faith in the first pair, washings and laying on of hands in the second, and resurrection and eternal judgment in the third. And the preacher has actually been discussing these six things throughout his letter so far. Now, he may not have used these exact phrases, but he's been talking about these three pairs, these six things, the whole time. So think of it more like spreading peanut butter on a piece of bread. The preacher has been spreading these six basic principles throughout his sermon here for five chapters. And he'll actually continue to do it throughout the rest of the letter. So don't look for these exact phrases like laying on of hands, because you won't find them. But think of it instead like he has been spreading the truth of these six basic things all along. And I'll show you briefly as we progress through. But the first pair of milk there in verse 1, the first pair of basic doctrine is not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, or simply repentance and faith. Remember, keep the context in mind. Don't let the context disappear. 
He's writing to a group of believers who were predominantly Jewish people who were being tempted to return to the Mosaic law and all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And throughout chapters 3 and 4, as the preacher has been talking about that first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, he's been spreading this theme of repentance and faith. And he talks about leaving behind dead works in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 when he says this, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is the good news of the gospel that the Hebrews were forgetting and why they were being reminded of it. They were trying to be justified through their performance. They were trying to be justified through their works. They were trying to be justified through their obedience to the law and they needed to repent or change their mind about their dead works. They were trying to be justified through their so-called good works. But these good works are actually dead works because no one can be good enough to be justified. No one can be justified by obeying the law. As Paul says in Galatians 2.16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so the Hebrews are being reminded that contrary to what they were taught in Judaism, they could not obey the law and be justified. They had to, and they must continue to repent from those dead works and to rest in the works of Jesus for them and have faith and trust in Jesus' works for them. And so that's the repentance aspect that he spread throughout chapters 3 and 4. But there's another part of this first pair, and it's called faith toward God, he says. The Hebrews have been reminded throughout this letter that they are called to trust in Jesus and what he has done for them. The benefits of the gospel that Jesus has secured for us only benefit us if we are united to him by faith. And he says that in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. And really, again, it's all in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, he says, For good news, or the gospel, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who Listened, And so that's the first, first pair that he's been talking about, repentance and faith. He's been talking about, especially in chapters 3 and 4. The Hebrews are called to progress beyond that in this letter. But again, please understand, he's not saying leave the gospel behind. Obviously, repentance and faith are still part of our lives, are they not? 
We still repent of our sins and we still trust in Jesus every day, don't we? It's why we have a a prayer of confession and celebration every morning before the sermon because we're confessing our sin and then placing our trust in Jesus. So we never leave repentance and faith behind. In fact, as Martin Luther said in the very first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the the door at at the church in Wittenberg, the very first of his theses was this, the Lord Jesus Christ has willed that all of life is repentance. So we never leave repentance and trust or repentance and faith behind because you and I are always going to sin, trying to be satisfied, trying to find our delight in something else besides Jesus And we're always repenting of that and turning to him in trust and saying, you're my treasure, you're my joy, you're my delight. And that's something that we never stop doing in this life. So he's not saying here, leave that stuff behind. He's just saying in this letter, I don't want to talk about that for a moment because I want to tell you about Jesus and Melchizedek. When the preacher says that we should leave the elementary doctrine behind and go on to maturity and not lay again the foundation, he's not saying leave the gospel behind. The gospel is the foundation. If you remove that foundation, the house crumbles. So this is a call to truly understand the gospel foundation and to know it. And if they do that, then they can move on and grow spiritually talking about deeper things while still preaching the gospel to themselves. So whether you are a mature, seasoned believer with a PhD in systematic theology or whether you're a brand new Christian who just trusted in in Jesus Christ yesterday, remember that you should never let the gospel disappear. You and I need the gospel every day. It should never disappear from our lives It should never disappear from our thoughts. It should never disappear from our conversations. We never move beyond the gospel. We only move further and deeper into its truths. But the preacher of Hebrews is also encouraging them to progress beyond the next pair that he mentions in verse 2, where he says, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. Now let me say something here, especially about this little pair. There are many different ways to interpret all of Hebrews 6, especially what we'll look at next week when the writer, the preacher of Hebrews says that once you've fallen away, you can't be restored to repentance. Okay, There are a lot of ways to interpret that verse, a lot of ways to interpret this verse. If you want to know all of those ways, I encourage you to read commentaries, read study Bibles. I'm just giving you my spiel, okay? This is what I think he's saying when he talks about instruction about washings. The word translated washings here in the Greek is the word baptismon. The only time this word is used, it's used in the plural is it's used of washing something. It's used four times in the New Testament. Two of those times are here in the book of Hebrews. It's used in Mark 7 to describe how the Pharisees were uh, OCD about washing their cups and their bowls. Mark tells us in Mark 7, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing, there's the word baptismon, of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They were uptight. 
And this word is used of the washing that occurs at baptism, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism or in that washing, the water. And then the preacher of Hebrews will use this same word in chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation, talking about all the washings in the Old Covenant. Again, the context is so important for understanding and interpreting what the washings mean. The preacher is writing to a group of predominantly Jewish believers who left Judaism behind and trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. So the background to the washings is the washings that were common to the Jewish people. The washings in the Old Testament were instituted By God to remind the worshipers that Yahweh was holy and no defiled person can enter into his presence. And there are numerous passages in the Old Testament that describe the washings that were required for worship. For instance, Exodus chapter 30 verses 17 through 18. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. The bronze basin was central to worship at the tabernacle and then also later at the temple. It was a smaller bronze basin during the tabernacle under the time of Moses. But when Solomon built the temple, it got an upgrade. When Solomon built the temple, the bronze basin came to be known as the sea because it was 17 feet in diameter, eight and a half feet deep, and it held about 10,000 gallons of water. In addition to the sea, this place where they would wash themselves, there were also 10 bronze-willed stands and basins for washing. And so washing was a very integral part to worship in the Old Testament. Keep in mind the context. Who is the writer of uh, Hebrews writing to a group of Jewish people predominantly. The animals that were sacrificed had to be washed off. People had to wash and prepare to enter the sanctuary to worship Yahweh. And the washings were a symbol picturing the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. Of course, the washings did not wash sin away, but it was a visible reminder that they were sinners who were polluted with sin through and through, and they needed to be cleansed and purified in order to worship the Lord. It was a symbol of purification, and it was central to worship in the Old Testament. And that's why the writer of Hebrews begins mentioning the purification that Jesus provided right at the outset of his letter. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
right at the outset, he wants to know that Jesus Christ purifies sinners, not the washings that they were used to. And so all of these washings in the Old Testament foreshadowed what Jesus would do for his people. He would come and purify sinners of their sin. The instruction about washings for these Jewish believers is that these types of washings that they grew up with, that they were used to, are no longer required because Jesus washes and cleanses us from all sin and all defilement. And so that's what the washings mean here, the purification of sins. I don't want to have to go over the purification of sins with you again, how you don't need those washings Can we leave that behind for a moment, he's saying, and so we can talk about Jesus and Melchizedek? We've gone over this a bunch. You guys know the washings don't do anything. Jesus has washed you. Can we leave that behind for a moment, the preacher is saying, and just talk about Jesus and Melchizedek? And the other part of this second pair of elementary truths is the phrase, the laying on of hands. Which I think, again, there are many interpretations, I think is referring to when an Old Testament worshiper would lay their hands on the head of an animal before they sacrificed. Again, this happened with every sacrifice. It was central. We have to keep the context in mind. We cannot let the context disappear. Who is the preacher writing to? He's writing to a group of Jewish people who wanted to go back to the old covenant, who wanted to go back to the old sacrificial system where they would lay their hands on an animal and that animal, they would see its throat slit. They would see the blood splashed on the altar and they would know, my sins are forgiven now. That's what they're tempted to go back to. Which is why our our picture, our sermon graphic series has all that meat on it, if you wondered why that is. It's because they want to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices where the animal would be cooked on the fire and then they would eat that meat with the high priest and other worshipers and celebrate the peace that they have with God. The Lord's Supper has replaced all of that. So we keep the context in mind. This is a group of Jewish people who wanted to go back to the old covenant sacrificial system. And what happened when you sacrificed an animal back then? You would take it to the high priest. You would lay your hands on it, signifying the transfer of your sins to that animal. And then that animal would die for your sins in your place. And the priest would slaughter the animal. Leviticus 1 mentions this. Leviticus, which was the most important book to any Old Testament worshiper. We neglect it, but it was so important. Leviticus 1, 3 through 5. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And this happened once a year for the entire nation on the Day of Atonement, as Leviticus 16 says. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. And this is what the Hebrews wanted to go back to. We want to go back to laying our hands on a sacrificial lamb. It was something very tangible that we could see and feel and know that our sins are forgiven versus having faith and trust in Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. 
So the imagery here of laying on of hands surely is reminding the Jewish Hebrews of what happened when they offered their daily sacrifices and when they would offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And you can see the connection to Jesus, can't you? Our sins are laid upon him as the sacrificial lamb. We lay our hands and we transfer our sin to Jesus on the cross. In other words, the laying on of hands means, as the song goes, behold him there, the risen lamb, our perfect spotless righteousness. That's the gospel. Who wants to leave that behind? Not me. The laying on of hands is Jesus tasting death for us in our place, which is exactly what the preacher said. He's already brought up this laying on of hands, this transfer, someone dying in your place. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's already brought up the laying on of hands with the death of Jesus. But the preacher is telling the Hebrews that he wants to move on at this point in the letter from these basics, faith and repentance, washings and laying on of hands, because he wants to talk more and more about Jesus, our high priest. But there's one more pair of basics that he mentions. The last pair of elementary truths that they are to progress beyond in this letter is a picture of what happens to believers and unbelievers when they die, resurrection and eternal judgment. He says in verse 3, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The Hebrews had learned in their Gospel 101 classes that all people will die and all people will be resurrected and all people will stand before God at the final judgment. And he's already alluded to this resurrection in chapter 2 when he says in verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's an allusion to the resurrection. And he's also talked about eternal judgment. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, he tells the Hebrews, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. To fall away from the living God means you fall away into eternal judgment. So he's already talked about these two things as well. He's spread these six ideas throughout the first five chapters. And so the Hebrews had been taught the basic truth that all people that have ever lived, believers and unbelievers, will be resurrected and stand before God and give an account. And what happens to those who don't know Jesus? What will they experience for eternity? They will experience eternal judgment. They will fall away into hell. They will experience everlasting judgment for their sin and rebellion. And so the preacher is reminding the Hebrews that only believers have hope after death. The unbeliever has no hope of God being merciful to them after death. The unbeliever has no chance to repent after death. They can only look forward to eternal judgment. And if that's you here today and you don't believe in Jesus, would you believe in him today? He's merciful. He's gracious. He'll forgive you of your sins and restore you to God. But that can't happen if you die and you don't know him, there is no repentance 
for anyone who falls away into eternal judgment. So the preacher has actually been talking about all six of these themes in his letter so far. But he's not saying leave these things behind because as he said in Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift from it. And he says that in Hebrews 2.1 to remind us to never let the gospel disappear. We should never let the context disappear either. When the pastor of Hebrews says, leave behind the elementary of doctrine of Christ, he's saying, in this letter that I'm writing to you right now, let's move on to the high priest stuff. He's not saying, let's leave these things behind. Remember the context. In this letter, right now, for a moment, let's leave this very basic but very important stuff behind so that I can start talking about Jesus and Melchizedek, and he will finally do that in chapter 7. So the milk that was mentioned back in Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 13, that milk are these six truths that can be simply described as Christianity 101. The elementary doctrine of Christ is what people first learn when they become disciples. When people first become disciples, they learn about repentance and faith, right? How we turn from our sin, we turn from our dead works, and we trust in Jesus. We have faith in him. We learn the elementary truths about washings, how Jesus' blood purifies and cleanses and washes us from all of our sin. And that happens because of the laying on of hands, if you will, because our sins are laid upon him on the cross. And then we learn about resurrection and eternal judgment, how all people will be resurrected, the just and the unjust, to either eternal life or eternal judgment. So these six things are just a picture. They're a snap of the gospel message. They're a snap of the basics of Christianity. These six topics that are listed in verses 1 through 3 are the basics that get covered early on in Christianity. These six basics are what you share with people when you tell them about Jesus. This is a snap, a snapshot of the gospel. In other words, these six topics are what you bring up when you tell someone about Jesus. You tell them something along the lines of this. You can't be good enough to earn God's grace and love. Jesus already loves you. Believe the gospel. Have faith in God. Faith toward God. Have faith in God and what he has done for you. Repent of your dead works. Repent. Change your mind. Stop thinking you can earn God's grace. Your good works are really just dead works. Repent of those dead works. And Jesus will wash away your sin and your uncleanness with his blood. Lay your hands on Jesus by faith and trust in him as the sacrificial lamb who was slain for you and in your place. Trust in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he will raise you up one day. He will resurrect you one day to enjoy him forever. But if you don't respond to this good news, all you can look forward to is eternity in hell, eternal judgment in hell. See, Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 3, it's just gospel Snapchat. It's just a snap of the gospel message. And in this letter, the preacher wants to leave these things behind for a moment. He doesn't want them to disappear. He just wants to move on because he wants to teach them about the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. He wants to tell them more and more about how they have a great high priest whose name is love and ever pleads for them. And that's exactly what he will tell them in chapter 7, how Jesus intercedes 
for us. And he says in verse three that Lord willing, they will move on to this. And if you read chapter seven, you can see how dense it is, how it's a tough chapter to understand, especially if you're a new believer. Hebrews seven is a difficult passage to grasp if you're like the Hebrews who never moved on from Christianity 101. And even though they're being challenged to move on to maturity, we must not make the mistake that somehow we move on from the gospel because the truth is we are to never let the gospel disappear. We never move beyond the gospel. We only move further and deeper into its truths. And that's why the main thing that you will hear about at this church is the gospel. And if you don't like that, you won't like this church. I don't know why people would not want to hear about Jesus over and over again. Boggles my mind. Tim Keller recently said this on Twitter. Because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. The gospel is endlessly rich. The gospel is big enough to be the one main thing here at Grace. And that's why we talk about it all the time. In our songs, in our prayers, in our sermons, in our classes, in our ministries, and in our discipleship. And the reason why the gospel should never disappear from our lives is because of the good news that it speaks to sinners like us. The good news that our sins have disappeared. Our sins have disappeared, Grace. Are you really tired of hearing the gospel? Well, think about how you acted this past week. Think about the words that came out of your mouth. How you grumbled, mumbled, complained, gossiped, slandered, tore somebody down with your words. Think about what you saw on television or what you looked at on the internet. Think about all your thoughts, the bitterness that you harbored, how that person drives you nuts, how that person that has wronged you, how you want to exact vengeance. Think about that person that you don't want to love, that person that you don't want to forgive. Think about all the doubts and the worry and the fear that consumed you this week. Think about all the ways that you sinned just this past week. Think about all the times that you did not obey and all the times that you broke God's law. I read this week something great that I'm going to steal. It says the law is your accountability partner. God's law, the standard of righteousness, is your accountability partner. And God's law says to us, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. No one meets that standard. No one can measure up to the standard. So the law is our accountability partner and it comes to us time and time again. It says, you have not measured up. We never measure up. And so that's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus measured up for us. That he was perfect for us, that he obeyed for us. So when you think about all the ways that you sinned this last week and how you broke God's law, guess what, Christian? All those things have disappeared. Poof, they're gone. You're forgiven. It is finished. 
So what do you do when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of all those things that you've done wrong? What do you do when the devil tempts you to, to despair by telling you of the guilt within? You go to the gospel. You don't leave it behind. You run to it. You run to Jesus, your great high priest. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. It's disappeared. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Here's why. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Are you really tired of the gospel? Are you really tired of hearing about Jesus? Do you really want to move on to something else? I will never get tired of hearing that my sins have disappeared. I will never get tired of hearing these words from Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I will never get tired of hearing of Micah's words in chapter 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our sins have disappeared, and that is good news. Let's be a church that is fluent in these words. Let our language here be the gospel. Let's be a church that is fluent in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such wonderful good news about your son Jesus, who lived the life that we could never live, and died the death that we deserve. And you raised him from the dead because his life and death were perfect. And he ascended and he sits at your right hand as our great, merciful, faithful high priest. That's good news, Father. Because the law holds us accountable all the time and we just can't measure up. And so let us hear the gospel again this morning. And may we sing and give glory to your son because he has made all of this possible. Impress the gospel deep down into the nooks and the crannies of our hearts by the power of your spirit we ask in Jesus' name, amen.